We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Welcome back to The Morning Briefing. I'm your host, Eric Dame, and ConnectingVets.com is your website. And we mean that. It's created by veterans for veterans and focusing entirely on the veteran experience coming from a team that knows of what we speak. Because each and every member of our team is very closely tied to the military, and almost every one of us actually served in the military. 13 years in the Navy for me, 13 years for producer Jake in the Army, and the rest of our team from a variety of backgrounds, but all very closely tied to the military, if not veterans themselves. So check out ConnectingVets.com for the latest and greatest coming from our team of veterans, giving you the best information available on the veteran experience. And of course, follow us on social media, where we are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Another group you might want to follow on social media is IAVA, Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America, one of the newest veteran service organizations that has really gotten a lot done in their short time of existing. And right now we're going to speak to Miss Melissa Bryant from IAVA. Melissa, welcome back to the show. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Can't complain. Coming off of a nice weekend. So all that good stuff. But it's been a while since we talked to you, since we were off last week, and quite a bit has happened since that time. Uh, some people may be familiar with the fact that the Secretary of the VA, Dr. David Shulkin, is now former Secretary of the VA, uh, and just regular Dr. David Shulkin, no longer Secretary in front of his name. Uh, how did IAVA respond to that news? I think we responded with the same response as most others, uh, shock. Uh, not so much shock that he was gone. Uh, unfortunately, the writing's been on the wall for that for some time. And a lot of the, the back and forth uh, between the White House and the dueling press statements, uh, it was all a distraction that ultimately hurts veterans. And so, sadly, uh, when he was ousted, that was not really unexpected. Uh, the nominee, a little bit of a different story. <laughs> Right. And that nominee, of course, uh, his doctor, the rear admiral over at the uh, at the military hospital there. Uh, there was a lot of talk about possible replacements for Dr. Shulkin. As you said, the writing was on the wall. There was a lot of conversation swirling around about who might replace him. We heard a bunch of names out there, a bunch of different people. Uh, the doctor, Dr. Ronnie Jackson, was not one of those names that we heard. So did that really catch you guys off guard? I think it caught us off guard. I think it caught uh, pretty much everyone in our space off guard, everyone who's watching. Uh, I think there's been a number of short lists that have circulated throughout the community, and uh, Admiral Jackson was not on that list. Uh, we hope that he's capable. We hope that he's up to task, but that remains to be seen. Um, throughout his career, it's an exemplary military career, exemplary um, medical career, but that doesn't necessarily translate into running a bureaucracy like the VA. It's a massive, massive bureaucracy with a $200 billion budget, over 300,000 employees. Um, it, you know, there's a cemetery network. It's more than just health benefits. Uh, it's an entire phone book full of benefits uh, when you add them all up on top of the healthcare system. So we hope that he's up to task. 
And it is one of those things where, you know, we've talked to the other VSOs and various other experts on this where we just don't know. Because of how good of a physician and surgeon he is, his career has kind of uh, kept him from serving in those military-style uh, overseeing roles where you would oversee a hospital or a series of hospital or, or Navy medicine or something like that. He's been such a top-notch physician that, uh, through no fault of his own, it's kept him from those managerial spots, I would say. Um, overall, though, it, we can't know one way or the other. So how do you think the, the decision ends up being made if they can't know whether he's uh, definitely experienced enough for this, if he has the ability to do it, since it's something that we probably can't know about that until he's actually doing the job? Is that correct? Absolutely. Well, first and foremost, I hope that in the confirmation process and we're hearing that there uh, should be a confirmation hearing sometime around the late April, early May timeframe, the hope would be that that's a very rigorous confirmation hearing and that there's hard questions that are asked of April Jackson to discern what his managerial experience is, that were not experienced rather, but his acumen, I guess. And um, beyond that, I would say one thing that is in the plus column, as we've all observed, is those who have the trust of the president, as Admiral Jackson obviously does, uh, tend to have a good relationship with him. So hopefully that's something that translates into a good relationship for the Department of the Veterans Affairs and that translates into good outcomes for all of us veterans. You know, and one of the conversations I was having with a friend about this was that, at least in this case, it, it is someone who is a flag officer in the United States Navy. So you would assume, uh, also a physician and a surgeon, you would assume a very intelligent person, you would hope able to pick up on things extremely quickly. I mean, that's that tends to be uh, one of those things that we expect of doctors, especially high-level doctors like Admiral Jackson. Uh, do you have any hope for him to be maybe exactly what the VA secretary position needed? He could be. I mean, well, I, first of all, I have every hope. I think there's no one who wishes for the VA to fail. Mm. So I have every hope that he is, again, he'll be up to task. He has the, the instinct, the acumen in order to carry out this job. Um, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot to ask of him. It's a lot to ask of anyone coming into this position. There have been former secretaries who have run massive bureaucracies, who have been previous cabinet secretaries, who, you know, had far better credentials on paper who were unsuccessful. Sadly, this is in uh, a department that's had, what, four secretaries, secretaries in as many years. And so there's a massive turnover. It's a big job. It's very hard to, to serve within this community that the rest of the world, the rest of the country doesn't really quite understand. It doesn't understand how the VA healthcare system in particular is so intertwined into the backbone of the U.S. healthcare system. And so in having that more global understanding of how the VA uh, fits within U.S. healthcare, how the VA fits as a bureaucracy within the U.S. government. That's something that he may not have experience in, but for all of our states, I hope that it's something that he takes to very quickly and hires good people. And that's going to be one of the keys, the people that he brings in around him. We're speaking with Melissa Bryant. Melissa is policy officer, chief policy officer for Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America, an Army veteran herself. And in addition to the change at the top, there was a statement put out late last week by the VA. Uh, I believe it was on Friday that it came out saying, hey, I know there's a lot of worry that the VA is being privatized. Don't worry. It's not. How did you look at that letter coming out from the VA uh, in the aftermath? of Secretary Shulkin's firing or resignation or whatever it ends up the, the case was? Uh, it, it was definitely um, a bit of a signal. It was a signal in that 
that there's an offense now, I think, that's being added into the narrative coming from the VA. Um, it's indicative of a sea change that's taking place. Right now you have uh, formerly Undersecretary Wilkie from the Department of Defense. He was the Undersecretary for Personnel and Readiness. Now he is the Acting Secretary for the VA in the interim between um, Admiral Jackson's confirmation hearings. And so with that, you have a DOD bent that's coming into uh, into the VA where there's an idea of what can we do that will allow for seamless transition from DOD into VA. So when you come off of active duty or guard or reserve and you take off the uniform and you transition to VA, what could be done there? So that's a good thing. Um, but the press statement in debunking the myth, one begs the question, I think, of, well, but why was that necessary? Is is there is there something afoot that needed to be addressed? And for most of us who are in this space and who are watching it, the argument would be yes. There's definitely a bear in the woods. There's something that needs to be addressed with privatization. And so to come out so forcefully with that statement, uh, I think signals that there's a, a fight to prepare for. I, do you think the fact that Admiral Jackson also coming from the Department of Defense Health System, I mean, that's where he's been his entire career. He's been very successful within it. That is a government-run health care system, I mean, fully government-run, just like the VA is uh, within the military. Do you think that that bodes well if he is, in fact, confirmed as Secretary of the VA for keeping the VA from being privatized, his background within uh, a similar health background? We, we should hope so, in that... It's not that he's coming in completely cold. I mean, he's he's not a veteran. He hasn't used uh, VA healthcare. Um, doesn't have direct knowledge of of how that uh, system is run. But coming from DHS, uh, from uh, Defense Healthcare, um, that's not necessarily going to be something that would not help him. I would say. So I think that at least it gives him somewhat of a leg up um, than people would expect. Right, and you would expect that an admiral who's been working in D.C. for a very long time has probably had a little bit of interaction with the V.A. If he's the president's physician, you would you would assume that he would have some understanding of it. And, of course, coming from a similar uh, similar service, he certainly understands the Department of Defense Healthcare Services. So uh, one of those interesting things that we'll have to keep an eye on. But it brings up an interesting point as well where Jake and I were talking earlier this morning about the fact that when he left the Army, when I left the Navy, if we could go back, there's things that we'd change. We were talking about things as early as boot camp, things that we'd change that we didn't like about the military. So that could mean that, you know, even someone who's had as much success as Admiral Jackson within the Department of Defense Health Service, we don't know for a fact that he's a fan of how everything works and how, uh, you know, the, the government-run healthcare services work. Is that is that something that you need to take into account as well? Or do we just need to wait until we actually hear from him and know something about what he feels about all this? It's definitely something we need to take into account. Uh, we do need to wait and see what's going to be said. Again, this is why I come back to we really need to have a very rigorous confirmation hearing and, and uh, confirmation process with him to gauge where his mindset is. We, I think the question of privatization will definitely come up during his confirmation hearing uh, from a few senators. But um, in terms of you know wanting to go back and change things if you could, and what his stance is on, on, on various things, we don't know. We just don't know. Uh, he's been, he's remained apolitical throughout his career, as any commissioned officer should be. 
He's also uh, never really been in a position, as you went through his uh, resume earlier, where he would have been in a position to even tip his hand toward where his leanings may be. So yeah. it's something we're going to wait and see. I'm hopeful that he will shed light on all of this during his confirmation hearing. And I hope that he will weigh the, the, the factors as he approaches the question, especially of privatization. And when we say privatization, we mean the expansion of unfettered access by third-party providers to use community care. Because I think that that's something where when they talk about debunking the myth of privatization, that definition is what really gets folks. And, and folks who are pro-privatization will say, well, there already is health care that's privatized by the VA. It's community care. We've always outsourced routine things out to the community. Yes, that's true. We're talking about the expansion of that. We're talking about unfettered access, like basically using the VA as if it's Blue Cross Blue Shield. The VA is not an insurance company. And so what I would hope is that Admiral Jackson, as he comes into this position, right now he's researching all of this. Right now he's getting spun up on what exactly has been happening in this space, who are the stakeholders. And of those stakeholders, that's what IAVA and other service organizations are there for, uh, for him. We provide counsel and advise the VA secretary. We have done so for our 14 years of existence as have the other veteran service organizations. And so we hope that he takes us up on that. And he really does look to us for that advice and counsel as he makes those big decisions. We're speaking with Melissa Bryant, Chief Policy Officer of Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. We've been talking mostly about the controversy and the maelstrom at the top of the VA with the removal of Dr. Shulkin, the nomination of Admiral Jack Jackson. There's just so much going on around all of this. Do you see this uh, this distraction? I mean, it has to be a distraction, particularly for the upper echelon folks over at the VA. Uh, do you think that this negatively affects things for the VA, where we've seen quite a bit of positive movement? And I'd say over the last year or so at the VA, do you think that this is a, a setback or does it necess not necessarily need to be? It doesn't necessarily need to be. Uh, I think initially it definitely was a setback. I think many were surprised, particularly by the timing of everything. Um, but folks are resilient. I know many of the senior staff at the VA and I think everyone who is there uh, particularly those who are the permanent civilians who are appointed there, they, they want to do what's right by our veteran community, and they want to ensure that everyone is moving forward, that they're collaborating in a collegial way, and working toward an outcome that is best for all veterans, and, and, and ensuring that the legislation that's been hanging in the balance, and that's that choice slash caring for our veterans legislation uh, that's been waiting this time that didn't unfortunately make it into the omnibus that passed a few weeks ago. Um, they want to ensure that they advance that and that we're advancing solutions that resolve the problems that we just talked about and hopefully move us away from the privatization mark. Wanted to ask you also about that omnibus. It's been a while since we last spoke as we were off last week and a lot happened since the last time we did, as I said. <laughs> uh, most veterans groups seem to be happy with some of the things in the omnibus, but generally disappointed at some of the major items that were left out kind of last minute from the omnibus. Uh, when IAVA took a look at what was included in it, what was left out, I mean, what's the overall balance of it? Do you see it as a, a net positive, a missed opportunity? What was the omnibus in IAVA's eyes? In our eyes, it was a net positive. Uh, I mentioned that the choice bill uh, did not make it in. There was going to be asset uh, relocation, basically BRAC uh, for the VA that 
was considered to be part of that bill. That was left out as well. Um, but despite the things that were left out of the deal, there were many good things that were left in the deal that we were proud to champion, such as uh, expansion in women veterans health care. Uh, there's research uh, or sorry, excuse me, funding for research into women's uh, prosthetics and into general expansion of facilities for women. There's um, uh, funding for the Clay Hunt Suicide Prevention Act, which is an IVA led bill. Uh, named for Clay Hunt, who was one of our uh, stormers and volunteers several years ago before he died by suicide. And so there's funding that went toward that for mental health. There's funding that went toward burn pits, something you and I talked about a few weeks back. Mm. Uh, that is another one of our big six priorities this year. There's funding for um, uh, expansion of, I believe, rope rehab. And so there's a lot of good stuff that's in the omnibus bill that are all things that IAVA is backed on behalf of post-911 veterans. And in fact, if you go to IAVA.org slash blog, uh, there's a blog that's written by our alleged director, Tom Porter, that outlines the wins that we saw that were in the omnibus. And so what we think is a net positive. And that's really what we're looking for is net positives and gains and moving in the right direction, which, you know, in this political climate, Melissa, it seems that the sky is always falling for everybody, no matter which side you're on. Everything that happens is the worst thing that ever happened to me. If everything's the worst then nothing's the worst, that's kind of how I look at it. But um, overall, the direction of veterans issues, as you talked about your big six, which were fairly recently announced uh, during your Storm the Hill event, uh, how do you think things are moving and should veterans have a positive outlook on the future, even considering things like Dr. Shulkin being removed and choice care funding not getting into the omnibus? Are, are things still moving positively for the veteran community? Absolutely. There's still plenty that's good that's happening in the veteran community. Look, it, it's really easy to focus on the doom and gloom. And I mean, for all of us living in Washington, D.C., I think it's palpable uh, these days as you walk you know, around town and, and talk about issues and all the chaotic nature of things. But there's still much to look forward to. There's still amazing strides that are being made in the veterans community. And where, unfortunately, the VA may falter and where our government may falter, that's where VSOs and veteran empowerment organizations like IAVA and others, that's where we step in to fill that gap. We're there for vet-togethers. We are there for uh, our rapid response referral program, or RIP, where our veteran transition managers who are master's level social workers are there to help those who are having any issues and, and, and work with them with total case management to support veterans of all eras, not just post-911, by the way. But programs like that that we have, programs that I know exist from other VSOs, we're there to step into the breach and to fill in those gaps of where you know, our government is a, a little bit chaotic right now, but I think overall within our space, these are positive times. We're still trending upward in terms of taking care of our best. There's much more that needs to be done, but as long as we maintain a focus of continuing to fund the right projects, continuing to ensure that veterans are being taken care of and that they're first and foremost in any part of legislation or policy that's created, that's what I think we can still continue to look toward happening in the future. We're speaking with Melissa Bryant, Chief Policy Officer for Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. And it's been mentioned a couple times during our interview here, and that is the Big Six. Of course, it was just over, I think it was just about a month ago, that the Big Six were officially released by IAVA. So we're about a month in from that on your t- 
policy priorities for 2018. Uh, do you have any progress reports to give us, essentially, on the Big Six? Do you have any any movement that you've seen or anything you guys have initiated to address those Big Six, which, of course, include uh, combating suicide among veterans, sustaining campaign to recognize and improve service for women's veterans, defending veteran and military education benefits, defend and reform government support for today's veterans, initiate support for toxic exposures, and empowerment of veterans who want to utilize cannabis. How are things moving a month in after the announcement of the Big Six? Well, as we were just talking about with the Omnibus, the five out of the six of our Big Six had a win associated with them. And so uh, I talked about Clay Hunt, uh, Suicide Prevention Act, and the expansion of, of mental health care funding. I talked about women veterans. There's uh, GI Bill funding. There's, uh, or right, I should say, expanded uh, education benefits funding in the bill. There's also um, uh, burn pits uh, research expansion in the bill as well. So those are big wins in and of itself. I would say stay tuned because we're working on looking for legislation vis-a-vis uh, -vis burn pits. And also there's several pieces that are out there now for cannabis that we're uh, looking to back and to continue to promote. But stay tuned for what's coming in the next, I'd say, month or so and moving forward with uh, possibly legislation with regard to our two newest issues with burn pits and utilizing cannabis. And the cannabis issue uh, remains a big one. There are a lot of people out there working on that. What's the biggest hurdle that you think we need to get past? Because there does seem to be a lot of agreement between the VSOs, a lot of agreement and support in the veteran community for this. But there's just, uh, I guess it's legislative hurdles, legal hurdles. I mean, what's the biggest hurdle that we need to get over in order for there to be uh, any sort of movement on that specific issue? It's the scheduling. Uh, the scheduling of cannabis right now is Schedule 1. It says it has no medical purpose, so it needs to be rescheduled or descheduled altogether, some groups would say, but uh, that's really the big challenge. That's what prevents for increased research. Right now, there's one small study that's happening with the VA um, that, that they're having difficulty finding volunteers, um, so it, it's really a challenge in that the scheduling of it. And then there's also a stig uh, destigmatization that needs to take place. And, you know, when I talked about the research, uh, that, or rather the study that's currently taking place within the VA, one of the challenges of that is that, I mean, folks are afraid to sign up. And even with the policy that the VA has of where you can now discuss cannabis use with your provider at the VA, but they can't make recommendations, they can't prescribe, of course. Right. And so there are people who are still afraid, frankly, to talk to their provider about the use of cannabis or even if it could potentially help them because they're afraid that they may lose their benefits, even though they're supposed to be able to do that without fear of retribution. So these are things that are major hurdles that need to be reconciled before we can really see improvement in this area. And really the way that our members see it and have seen it for years, cannabis is seen as another resource that's not an opioid that can possibly help those who are having issues with chronic pain, uh, possibly even mental health injuries like PTSD. So if there's something out there that's going to help us, we want to be able to utilize every available resource. And so we want to make sure that we're empowering those who want to utilize cannabis as a resource.
You know, when you say the VA is having trouble finding people willing to take part in that study, I find that hard to believe just because of the number of people we've talked to that are interested in it, that are willing to to do stuff in it. It's, it's a very fascinating subject, really, and one where it just never seems to me like we're getting the full story, particularly from the VA, from the federal government, etc. Well, we've just got a, about a minute and a half or so left here with Melissa Bryant, Chief Policy Officer of IAVA. So I want to ask you, Melissa, if people want to get involved Involved with IAVA, if people want to check out IAVA and what you guys are all about, what is the best way for them to go about doing so? Well, the best way is to check out IAVA.org. If you go to our website, you can check out IAVA in Washington. It's everything that we do in our advocacy. You can check out our rabbit response referral program. That's the uh, master's level social workers that I talked to about earlier. And if you look into the resources that they can provide, and if you also just go around our website, you'll see for our members, we host vet-togethers. Our members host vet-togethers themselves. That's essentially your, your local community connection within IAVA. We also have a virtual veterans hall that you can be a part of. We don't have the traditional uh, veterans halls as other legacy VSOs do. Our generation connects digitally, has always. And so joining our virtual veterans hall, that will bring you into our community of veterans where you can uh, – experience the camaraderie mm-hmm. with folks from across the nation in real time. So IAVA.org, that's where you can find out all sorts of things that you need to know about what we do for the post 11 generation. And of course, IAVA does not have membership costs. If you want to be a member, all you got to do is sign up and you are a member. And of course, at that website, IAVA.org, you can find a PDF of their big six, which is their legislative agenda for 2018, headed up by their chief policy officer, Melissa Bryant. Melissa, we want to thank you as always for joining us on the morning briefing. Hope you have a great rest of the week and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you so much, Eric. Talk to you soon. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 